So welcome to Severn. Welcome to week six. Uh, it's, it's actually going to be our final week of our series called The Kingdom, in which, if you've been following along, you know that we've been looking at specific parables that Jesus gave during his time here that are all about this thing that Jesus referred to as the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus was here, one of the things that, that Jesus would often do in, in describing himself as he would call himself the Son of Man, which admittedly, you know, reading that uh, through a modern-day lens some 2,000 years later, that's a really odd title for Jesus to call himself because, you know, I read that and you probably read that and the first thought in your mind is, well, yeah, I guess Jesus is the Son of Man. What else are you going to be the Son of? But that title would have meant a lot more uh, to, to Jesus' original Jewish audiences um, because the, the Son of Man was this key figure in one of the oldest Jewish prophecies, I was just reading it this morning, it's in Daniel chapter 7, there was this prophecy God gave to Daniel that one day this, this figure would appear, uh, sort of standing at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, this figure would be called the Son of Man, and uh, of all the things that, that Daniel was told about this figure, he was told that the Son of Man is somehow going to be able to establish a kingdom that is going to spread everywhere, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the, and the thing that is, is most unique about the Son of Man's kingdom is that it will know no end. And so when Jesus Christ was here, and he called himself the Son of Man, and he started talking about this thing called the kingdom of God as though it was not just an end of history event, but it was actually happening now, you, you can sort of understand why crowds gathered and people sat up and paid attention. Because they understood what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying is, uh, I, I have come to fulfill every prophecy that all of your hopes have hung on since sin broke this world in half. I've, I'm the one, Jesus said, that, that you all have been waiting for to fix everything. Jesus said, I'm here to bring God's revolution because I actually am God's revolution. And Jesus was saying that, that through him, by belief in his name, by receiving him, that the revolutionary power of God's kingdom would enter your life and my life. It would revolutionize our relationship with God, revolutionize our relationship even with ourselves, revolutionize our relationships with our neighbors, and that through us, through continual submission to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, that that kingdom power would extend through us and begin to change and transform and ultimately heal this world. And so this is an insanely immense claim that Jesus made when he called himself the Son of Man and he was talking about this kingdom that he came to install. And, and all through this series, we've been looking each week at, at these different parables Jesus gave and how they give us glimpses and they, they allow us to see facets of what this kingdom is like. And here today, we're looking finally at, at one final parable that, that teaches us one final lesson about um, God's kingdom and that is that this kingdom, the kingdom of God, is actually a feast. So I'm going to read uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. It says, Jesus also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who reclined at the table with Jesus heard these things, he said to Jesus, the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God is blessed. Then Jesus told him, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who were invited, come because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. So the slave came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his slave, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind and lame. Master, the slave said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the slave, go out into the highways and lanes and make them come in so that my house may be filled. 
For I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will enjoy my banquet. This is God's word. So so this parable, first off, Jesus gives in response to a statement uh, by a man that he was reclining at table with. And the man said, blessed will be those who eat bread, or some of your translations actually say, who eat the feast of the kingdom of God. We read that in, actually just read that in verse 15. Now, feasts are an amazing thing, something that I don't think we're particularly acquainted with in our very individualistic culture. I'm sorry if I'm the first person that's ever told this to, but people in the West don't know how to party like people in Bible times, and really all throughout the world still do today. We do, probably most of us have never attended a feast like the ones that are talked about in Scripture. But feasts are an amazing thing, at least for two reasons, because number one, they have the ability not only to banish your hunger, because there's enough food if it's a feast, so that you're not leaving hungry, but number two, uh, feasts have this unique ability of, um, of putting away all of your sadness, because it's a time of you know, festival celebration and it's you know, all the townsfolk and, and your friends and your family and your relatives. It's where relationships are formed and you know, maybe relationships are healed and all that kind of stuff. And so what this man was saying to Jesus, you know, referring to his understanding of the kingdom of God, what he was basically saying is on the last day when the kingdom of God is finally here, this day that our hearts are really set on, on that day, uh, this, this feast is going to begin. It's going to be a feast to end all feasts and our hunger and our sadness is going to be abolished forever. And so Jesus, really all through this parable, agrees with the man and essentially says you're exactly right. That is exactly what the kingdom of God is like. It's, it's a feast. And feasts were something that if, if you read the gospel account, specifically Luke's gospel account, you'll see that, that uh, feasts were very near and dear to Jesus' heart. As a matter of fact, you're probably familiar with this, it was at um, a wedding feast that Jesus actually performed his very first miracle, kind of kicked off his public ministry. In John chapter 2, Jesus went to this wedding feast in this place called Cana, and he very famously turned water into wine, which you know, it's not very difficult to imagine, turn sort of a mediocre party or maybe even a bad party into the most amazing party that those people had ever been to in their lives. And I just want to ask you to think about that for a second, that for Jesus' very first miracle, he decided to essentially throw the greatest party uh, that anybody in the town of Cana had ever experienced, that they would have been talking about for the rest of their lives and for generations to come. That was how Jesus decided to kick his ministry off. And I remember, I've taught on that passage at least twice, and I remember really asking myself, why is it that Jesus would begin there? Because John's gospel account says that that was not just a miracle, that was a sign. Meaning it wasn't just this bare display of Jesus' supernatural power, it was a very specific display of Jesus' power, meant to convey a specific aspect of who Jesus is and what he came to do. my, My point is, I say all that to say, If it seems odd to you that Jesus would do something as seemingly frivolous or unimportant with his supernatural power as, you know, basically make sure that that a wedding feast was amazing, if that seems odd to you, then there's a good chance that you really don't understand who Jesus is or what he's really about. Right, to a lot of people outside of Christianity, but my suspicion is even to a lot of us inside of Christianity, There's this thought process that Christianity is basically this life and where you try really hard to do the good stuff, you try really hard not to do the bad stuff, and yeah, it's not very fun, but hey, that's the price you pay to get to heaven. And my question is, is that what Christianity is to you? Even if you know otherwise with your mind, my question is, is that what Christianity really is to you? And if it is, then in this parable, what Jesus is saying is what what you've basically failed to understand is the good news that the kingdom of God is a feast. It is a banquet. It is a party. Jesus himself is the Lord of that feast. And he came to bring us festival joy, to abolish our hunger, to abolish our sadness forever. But in, in saying that, uh, Jesus explains in this parable that while Jesus' kingdom, while God's kingdom is a feast, that's really the, you know, the ultimate feast. Uh, it's also a feast that's unlike any other feast. I'm going to say feast a lot today. You should get used to hearing that. I already feel like I've said that a lot. Just got to get that out there. Um, and, but the reason I say that is because if, if, you know, humanly speaking, if you throw a party and you want to make sure that it's, you know, a great party that people are going to talk about, the first and most important thing you really focus on is the guest list. You want the biggest and the brightest 
and the, you know, the most beautiful and, and the, you know, the most powerful and the, you know, most fun and the, all that kind of stuff. Um, Jesus' banquet is actually exactly the opposite uh, because while this is a feast, a banquet, a party that's going to end all feasts and banquets and parties and put them all to shame, it's a, it's a banquet, Jesus describes, that requires humbling on the front end, a, a profound kind of inner soul humbling. Eating at it requires humbling. Having its power course through your life and extend through you requires humbling. And so this parable, essentially, this is what we're going to talk about today. Jesus is explaining uh, three ways that we have to humble ourselves or we will not enter his kingdom. And, and not only that, if you hear that, you're thinking, okay, well, I'm already saved, so what does this have for me? It, it's, not, it's not just that simple because not only... Um, not only do you need to humble yourself to enter into this kingdom and enter into this banquet, but if you're not continually being humbled, if you and I are not continually being humbled in these three ways, then we're not going to experience the joy and the life-changing power of it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Three ways that we need to be humbled uh, in order to make sure that we enter into and fully experience the, the feast, the banquet that is the kingdom of God. So with that, I want to get right to our first um, main idea today. Number one, it's this. You have to humble yourself under the freeness of the kingdom. Humble yourself under the freeness of it. So what you have uh, in this parable is a master who prepares a feast, and when everything's ready, he sends out the word and says, everything is ready. Everything is prepared. Everything has been done. Um, Jesus's point, at least one of the points that he's getting across here, it's really important to understand, is that the kingdom of God is not a potluck supper that depends on what you bring to it. Um, To sort of elaborate on this, you know, everything has been prepared. The master putting that idea out there means not only can you not earn your way onto this guest list, but you have to accept that you have nothing to add to this party. The only thing that you need to bring is your need. All right, I, I mentioned this a couple months ago, something that kind of surprised me. I'm 34 years old now. That doesn't surprise me. I was hoping to make it this far. What does surprise me is that in my 30s, I got into cooking. Really into cooking now, never saw that coming. I just, I, I, there's something really satisfying to me about taking raw ingredients and taking something that, you know, hopefully isn't terrible. So because of my newfound love for cooking, I naturally have a newfound love for uh, a gentleman you may have heard of named Gordon Ramsay. So I've watched a lot of his shows and uh, seen, seen a few of his YouTube tutorials and, you know, developed some knife skills and other, you know, cooking tips and, and, and tricks from him. And, um, you know, in my kind of newfound devotion to Gordon, um, I decided that one of the things I want to add to my bucket list, for whatever reason I've been thinking about that, is I would like to eat at a Gordon Ramsay Michelin-starred restaurant. I just think that'd be really neat to do. It's totally attainable. I'm sure it'd be super expensive. I'd probably leave hungry because it seems like the, you know, the nicer the restaurant, the smaller the portions. I just think it'd be a really cool thing to knock off the list. With that in mind, uh, sort of putting this idea together, and, and, and I'd ask you to imagine something. Uh, could you go ahead and imagine if me and Katie somehow made this work where we get to sit down in one of, you know, these, one of the world's nicest restaurants is what it is, and I, uh, I walk in the front door with a, a Pyrex dish in my hand covered in tinfoil, I think you understand where I'm going with this, church. Why don't you, why don't you run this scenario where I, I walk up to, I find Gordon Ramsay in one of his restaurants, kind of pull him aside. Uh, Gordon, uh, just a moment of your time, sir. And, uh, and I reveal this Pyrex, you know, p- the big surprise. I said, Gordon, I got this bean dip that's going to set this place off, all right? So go ahead and move some tables around. I think you want this front and center. You, you don't even have to thank me later, you know? What do you think would happen there? What, based on what I know about Gordon, is I'd be wearing the bean dip by the end of the night. And the reason I say that, uh, it would be, not, inappropriate is not a strong enough word to describe what that would be. For me to bring a homemade dish to a, a, a Michelin star, that's not just inappropriate, that's highly insulting to the establishment. To assume that they haven't, you know, that they're not good enough at what they do, or that they don't have enough such that I need to supplement this feast, is actually a profound insult 
to someone like that. And so you compare that to the feast that God says he's preparing for his people, and you sort of get the idea that Jesus is getting across here, that, that not only has everything been done for us, but for us to think that we have something to add to it would actually only take away from it. And so what, what is our, exactly our job? What should we be bringing to this? There's only one thing you bring to a feast that God prepares for you, your need, your hunger, yourself. The only thing that's required is that you posture yourself so as to receive it. Now, admittedly, this is an idea, you know, the idea that, that the salvation of Jesus Christ can't be achieved, it must only be received through humility, and actually pride is one of the primary things, if not the primary thing, that will keep you from receiving his salvation. Certainly not a, um, an, an idea that, that you've not heard me say basically every, I think I say that every time I'm up here in some way, shape, or form. If I can, though, I'd like to sort of come at this idea from a different angle that maybe you'll find illuminating or, or, or helpful. Uh, there's a lot of people who feel that they're too bad for Jesus. Uh, and I'm not talking about, um, you know, I'm a sinner who needs, you know, the salvation that Jesus offers, praise God. I mean, there's just a lot of people who think they're too bad, that they're too much of a failure, that they got too much sin in the camp, that they're too unworthy, that they're too unlovely, that they're all these kinds of things. Um, a lot of people outside the faith who never enter the kingdom of God because they believe that way. I talked to somebody who, uh, they went on to get saved later in life, but as, as a younger person, they actually believe they sold their soul to the devil and could never be saved. They didn't want to ask any of their Christian friends about Christianity because they believed, I'm just too far gone. There's a lot of people outside the faith that think like that. And that thought is what keeps them from ever entering into the kingdom. But with that, there's also a lot of people inside the faith who are in the kingdom, who legitimately do have a relationship with Jesus, but they never really seem to experience the power and the joy that's available to them because they also carry that kind of same thought process and and self-image around with them. And something I want to offer to you is, is that somebody who goes through life constantly telling themselves and constantly telling everybody else how much of a failure they are is a person that's totally dominated by pride. David Brooks, in a book that a friend recommended to me years ago called The Road to Character, offered a definition of pride. Uh, I I read this book probably for five years ago, but I highlighted it, and I made a little mental note of it, and I went back to it today. I find this so helpful. Here's what he said. When we use the word pride negatively, we think of the arrogant person, someone who's puffed up and egotistical, boasting and strutting about. But that's not really the core of pride. That's just one way the disease of pride presents itself. By another definition, follow me on this. Pride is building your happiness around your accomplishments using your work as the measure of your worth. It's believing that you can arrive at fulfillment on your own, driven by your own individual efforts. So, he says, pride can come in bloated form. That version's familiar. But there are other proud people who have low self-esteem. They feel they haven't lived up to their potential. They feel unworthy. They want to hide and disappear, to fade into the background and nurse their own hurts. We don't associate them with pride, but they're still at root suffering from the same disease. They're still yoking happiness to accomplishment. It's just that they're giving themselves a D- rather than an A+. They tend to be just as solipsistic and in their own way as self-centered, only in a self-pitying and isolating way rather than in an assertive and bragging way. The truth is there's a lot of people that go through life, even the Christian life, just like that. And they never end up being filled with the joy and the power and the peace that's, that's made available to them at this banquet because underneath all of their self-loathing and their self-deprecating and their kind of, you know, self-flagellating, whipping himself on the back, you know, kind of thing. Underneath all of that is actually a really subtle form of pride, and what's happened is they have not grasped the freeness of this banquet. Now, I I think it's appropriate to say that every single one of us struggles with this idea to one degree or another, or maybe at one time in our life more so than another, because the reason I say that we all do is because the human heart so naturally has a tendency to connect our performance with our identity, Meaning when we do good, we feel good. When we do bad, we feel bad because we think we are bad kind of thing. The human heart naturally does that. No one needs to teach us to do that. Uh, In other words, all of us have this tendency to say, even though you might never say it out loud, is that because I have failed in this area, you know, or or because people don't respect me or treat me the way that I feel I I should be treated, or because, you know, I, I haven't done that well in my career, my relationships haven't gone the way that I want, my life hasn't panned out the way that I had hoped that it would for me, 
because of all that, I feel so unworthy. Because of that, I feel anxious. Because of that, I feel like I'm on trial every day. Because of that, I feel like I have something to prove. And when you get locked into that way of living, then, then you know, hearing about how much God freely loves you doesn't really move you because you're, you're, you're sort of locked into this, this way of life in which you've told yourself that you're not going to feel worthy until you have or, or until you accomplish this thing or that thing. The issue underneath that is that you have not grasped this first, you know, seemingly elementary principle, the freeness of this banquet. And so maybe, maybe this would be helpful to you like it was helpful to me, but I, I can say with conviction that whether you're, you're, you're holding on to guilt because of things that you've done, or holding on to bitterness because of things that people have done to you that have affected you and, and you believe have kept you from being this person that you would have otherwise been, this person that you believe you're not now, you know, and, and that's what's making you feel like you're so unworthy or, 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 or whatever it is, however that's manifesting itself, all that really is underneath that is a form of pride. And what Jesus would say to every one of us is, even if you hadn't done that thing that you just keep beating yourself up for, that you just can't let go of, that you continually, you know, sort of whip yourself for, even if you had never done that, even if other people had not done what they had done to you, that you believe has so fractured you and kept you from being the person you could have otherwise been, even if none of that was the case, you still would not have anything to offer at this feast. And so the only thing left for you to do is come as you are, bringing nothing, offering nothing except your own need. We need to humble ourselves under the freeness of the kingdom. That's the first idea. The second idea is that we need to humble ourselves, number two, under the commonness of the kingdom. The commonness of it. And so the, the first set of people uh, that the master sends out his invitations to in this parable, obviously are the right crowd. The people that make the guest list. They're, you know, the master's friends, the master's peers, the master's, you know, they're homeowners. They could probably pay him back. And then with, without fail, every single one of them finds a way to, to, to get out of it. Um, and so the master of the house has to then send out his servants and, uh, and he reaches out and he brings in um, four groups of people. The poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. And like everything else Jesus says, that is incredibly significant. Uh, that those are the people that Jesus says wind up making it into this feast. Because if you read, old, if you're familiar with Old Testament law, all the way back in Leviticus chapter 21, it specifically says that no one who was blind or crippled or lame, really born with any kind of disfigurement, uh, is, is allowed to serve as a priest in God's presence in the temple. It specifically said that in Old Testament law. And because of that, we actually know from extra-biblical documents that even in Jesus' day, there were people who interpreted Leviticus 21 as teaching that no one who was poor or maimed or blind or lame would be able to participate in the Messianic banquet, which is this end-of-history event in which God uh, unites his people to himself. In other words, it was a common belief in Jesus' day that if you were poor, or if you were born with any kind of disfigurement or deformity, then that was, God's, that was evidence of God's wrath resting on you and that God had proactively sort of rejected you for sin in your life that he knew you were going to commit or sin in your family's life or, or whatever it is. And here Jesus in this parable says not only do the people that belong to those four groups of people, the poor, maimed, blind, and lame, not only do those people make it into his banquet, but they're the only ones that make it in in this parable. And like everything else Jesus said during his time here, this would have been shocking to his original audience. So the question is, what is Jesus teaching here and what should we see? And I actually, I just want to draw out two ideas from this, this particular aspect of, of this parable. First off, what Jesus is saying here is something uh, that, that the last 2,000 years of history proves. All right, what Jesus is saying, uh, clear as day in this parable, whether we like this or not, and I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, perhaps some people won't, is uh, the closer you are, either by your education or your vocation or your socioeconomic status or, status or whatever it is, the closer you are to sort of the nexus of social power and influence in a given society, meaning basically the further you are from, you know, the lower class, the unwashed masses, whatever that is for, you know, given society, the higher up the ladder you go, the more you're going to have a tendency to have a prejudice against the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is, is, is clearly saying here. That the teaching of this parable is that the kingdom of God has this tendency to flow most naturally and easily toward the needy, 
and the oppressed and the poor and the marginalized. That's why Jesus oftentimes in his ministry would say to the Pharisees, to you know, the highly educated, to the influencers, to the culturally elite, Jesus would straight up tell them, listen, prostitutes and tax collectors, whores and whoremongers are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you all. And conversely, you read through the gospel accounts and you'll find, generally speaking, that it was the common folk that were much more drawn to Jesus and were much more willing to accept the message and the person of Jesus. And that was not just a Bible times thing. That's something that you've seen throughout history. History shows again and again in basically every human society that's been formed for the last 2,000 years that the people of the greatest influence and the greatest power and the greatest status in any given society tend to find basically every other religion except Christianity palatable. And the reason for that is because Christianity unlike every other religion, is the only one that says you are a wicked sinner and there is not a thing you can do to help yourself. It took nothing less than, than the bloody, you know, gore-ridden, primitive-looking death of the Son of God so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be freely adopted into God's family purely by His grace. Every other religion compared to that basically says, uh, you know, here's what you need to do. Live a good life. Try to give back, try to be a good person like anybody even agrees what those terms even mean. And that, I don't have to tell you, is a night and day difference from Christianity. Anybody who says that Christianity says basically the same thing as other religions, not trying to be rude, that's just a very uninformed take. The final words of Buddha were strive without ceasing. Final words of Jesus, it is finished. These are not the same thing. They're not, they're saying wildly different things. And so my point is here, the Christian gospel is a unique gospel. It's unique because not only does it require your humiliation on the front end for you to even enter into it, but Christianity actually requires your and my continual humiliation for our continual growth. That's why it's often been said in Christianity that the way up is down, and that's just not quite like any other religion. And so throughout the last 2,000 years, cultural elites, the people at the, you know, the, the, the upper crust kind of people, have always had a tendency to want to remake Christianity from something that says only the death of God could save you to something that says, you know, you're not perfect, but who is? I mean, everybody makes mistakes, and the important thing is try to give back, be benevolent, be a good person, live a good life, and, you know, it'll probably work out for you in the end. And so the teaching of this parable, first and foremost, is that the closer you are to kind of the the nexus of power in a society, the more at risk you are for having a prejudice against the gospel. That's what this says. Now let me ask a question that I don't think I've heard anybody ask before. I was trying to think, what would I be thinking if I heard this? Let me ask a question. Maybe you've asked this. Why is that the case? What I'm asking is, why would my status in a given society uh, or or my material possessions have anything to do with my relationship with God and his gospel? And I, I just want to offer you an answer to that question. Here's an answer to that question. Here's why your status and your stuff has an impact on your relationship with God and your ability to really humble yourself to accept his free gift. Here's why. Because according to Jesus, there is this strange but undeniable connection between our material possessions and our spiritual conditions. Just let that marinate for one moment. There is this undeniable connection between material possession and at least the way we perceive our spiritual condition. That's why Jesus did not say how difficult it is for either really rich or really poor people to enter the kingdom of God. He did not say that. He said how difficult it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. See, the teaching there is, and and you see it in this parable, clearly something that Jesus drove at over and over again, is that if you have never really, if you've never experienced genuine material need, it's going to be much harder for you to admit and continually internalize your genuine spiritual need. When Jesus taught us to pray, one of the, one of the um, you know, famous commands in there that Jesus told us to pray is give us this day our daily bread. Now I'm just going to say in this country, most of the people listening to me right now have no idea what it is to actually need to say those words. Most of us have no concept, and I'm sure that there are people that that have had a concept of that. I'm not saying everybody. Some of us probably have been in a place where we've actually needed to say, God, I don't know where my sustenance for this 24-hour period is going to come from. I'm relying on you entirely to provide for me. But most of us, myself included, have no idea what it is to actually mean those words. 
You know, I've had entire loaves of bread in my pantry go bad because I couldn't even open them fast enough to eat them before mold got a hold of them, which, full disclosure, I'm embarrassed to admit in the context of this teaching. But here's the point that I'm driving at here. Jesus' parable is a warning to people like you and me. It's a warning that we are at a greater risk. It's a warning to people who don't know what it's like to occupy the position in society that the poor, maimed, blind, and lame occupied in Jesus' society, that we are at a greater risk for failing to humble ourselves under the commonness of this kingdom because we fail to understand exactly how spiritually needy we really are. That's the first idea here. I took more time on that one. This, this is going to be a little bit quicker. The, the second thing that I, that I want to draw out from this idea of the commonness of the kingdom is that Jesus' point here is not just that the kingdom power of God and the message of the kingdom tends to flow more easily toward you know, people in the alleys, to quote Jesus here, people of great need materially, people on the bottom rung of society in, in, in any given society. His point is not just that, that the kingdom tends to flow most naturally toward them. His point is that it's the master's desire that his servants would go to those people. Jesus is not just saying they tend to get the message more than anybody else does. He's saying it's God's desire for his people to physically go to and love and serve and reach out to those people. In, in other words, just to put this plainly, what, what you could pull from this parable is that if a, if, if a given community of people who claim to be followers of Jesus do not have a heart for the poor and the marginalized, then they do not have a heart that reflects God's heart. And I, if I can, for a moment here, just point something out. It's an interesting time to be preaching because probably more so than any other time in, in at least in my lifetime, when you start to talk about you know, serving the poor, that has almost been like a hijacked idea that now that's a political statement rather than a theological one. And so when a pastor starts talking about we should have a heart for the poor, we should serve the poor, it's almost like, you know, I, I see it all the time on Twitter. I have no idea why I still have a Twitter, but I, I see it all the time over there. That when you start talking about this, people's walls go up and they start to question, well, what kind of camp is he in and what is he saying and what's his theology and all this kind of stuff. It is, it is so obvious, just looking at the words of Jesus, that followers of Jesus should have a heart for the poor. I could, I could pull any number of text references, but the first one that came to my mind when I was thinking about this idea this week is Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that on the last day, all people are going to be gathered before him and they're going to be um, basically placed into one of two camps. They're going to be sheep or they're going to be goats. And the sheep are his people that are going to enter into his presence. And the goats are not his people. They're going to be cast out of his presence. And according to Jesus, they're going to be cast into eternal punishment. Which is why Christians don't believe in annihilationism. We believe that people spend eternity somewhere, with God or without. And Jesus said, read it this week. It's an incredibly sobering passage, Matthew 25. Jesus said on the last day, people are going to be gathered to him. And he said, he said what's, what's different about his people on that day, I mean, certainly there's a lot of things, but Jesus said in that passage, the thing that's going to be different about his people on that day is, is he says, my people are the ones who, uh, when I was hungry, they fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was a stranger, you took me in. And when I was sick, you, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And, and, and Jesus' people are going to say, Jesus, Lord, when did we see you in any of those conditions and, and care for you? And Jesus says, as you did to the least of these, you did it unto me. And Jesus' point there is not, obviously, it's not that if you do a really good job of, of loving poor people, then you're going to earn your ticket into heaven. Certainly that's the opposite of the gospel, the clear teaching of Jesus and the rest of Scripture. But his point there is that one of, if not the clearest sign that you genuinely do understand the gospel, you genuinely do have a relationship with Jesus, and you are building your life on that gospel, it's going to be reflected in your heart for the poor and the marginalized, for the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame. Because to come to Jesus and to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus means that spiritually I am impoverished, but I've been given riches, heavenly riches in Jesus. And so a heart that's been changed by that naturally looks for ways that we can give both spiritually and materially our riches away. And if that's unnerving, if that's unsettling, if that's unchallenging, I think that's a really good thing because that probably means that the, you know, it, it, you're really taking it seriously and God's working. And so secondly, Jesus tells us here that we need to be humbled under the commonness of the kingdom. But this brings us to, to our third. It'll be our last idea today and it'll be the last idea of this in, entire series. It's number three. You must humble yourself under the importance of the kingdom. 
the importance of the kingdom. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, it says, it says, Then Jesus told him, A man was giving a large banquet and invited many, verse 17, at the time of the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. So let me ask the question, why did these people decide not to come? None of the people who originally get invited make it in. It's all you know, a bunch of basically second rounders. So why did this original group of people decide not to come? If, if you look really carefully at this, what you'll see is that uh, the group of people Jesus is describing here are not the people that we would call unbelievers today. Most of the time, when, 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 when people think about an unbeliever, they think about somebody who just outrightly rejects Christianity, like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins, you know, people that kind of say, Christianity's stupid and you've got to be stupid to believe it. That is not the type of people that Jesus is referring to here. Verse 16 tells us that these people were invited. Verse 17 tells us that the servants came back to those people and said, all right, everything's ready. See, in, in Jesus' day, if, if, uh, if you were throwing a party, this is common practice in the Middle East and even, even in the Far East, it was common practice uh, to send out a preliminary round of invites to kind of gauge interest, preliminary interest in your party. And depending on the kind of feedback that you got, you would then cater your feast according to the initial responses. And then, you know, the, the second time that, you know, you, you prepare things between now and, 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 and the actual day of the party, and then you send out your servants again and you let them know, hey, you know, we're ready to do this thing. The point is, uh, all of these people who wound up missing out on the feast were people who initially said they were going to come. I mean, if you think about it, it's just logical. There's no reason why servants would go back to those people and say, hey, everything's ready for this feast if the first time they invited those people, they all said, no, I'm not interested, find somebody else. And so the, the, the kind of people Jesus is describing are not, you know, they, they're not self-professing atheists. They're not people that say, you know, I, have, I don't have any time for God. It's ridiculous, you know, fairy tales and butterflies. Have at it. You know, that's not, that's not at all the type of people Jesus is describing. Jesus, and this is where this parable gets really sobering for me. The type of people Jesus is describing are people who initially look committed. These are people who at least verbally express their commitment to the kingdom of God. These are people who say, yeah, I'm interested in that. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'll give that a shot. These are people who might raise a hand or walk an aisle or pray a prayer or get baptized. They might intellectually agree to a statement of faith or a set of Christian doctrine that's held as orthodox for the last 2,000 years. Out loud, they would say all of these things, but not a single one of them makes it in. And there's one specific reason why these people don't make it in. And if this doesn't sober you up, I don't have a lot for you. The reason these people don't make it in is because these, thought, these people thought this banquet would not disturb their normal lives. These people thought this kingdom could be fit into their agenda and their plan for their life without getting in the way of what they really wanted to do. Now, I mentioned this on the front end of this series, something a speaker said years ago that really stuck with me. He said, everybody wants enough Jesus to get into heaven. Everybody. I mean, who doesn't love the idea of eternal bliss and forgiveness, mercy, grace? That sounds like a good deal. Everybody wants enough Jesus to get into heaven. What not everybody wants is enough Jesus to really change their life. That's who Jesus is talking about here. And so in this parable, Jesus Christ comes and he says, listen, what you failed to understand is I'm a king. I'm not a consultant. I'm not an assistant. I'm going to be everything or I'm going to be nothing. My kingdom's too big to be fit into your life without fundamentally transforming your life. And if I'm going to occupy a place in your life, I'm going to occupy the place of king, Jesus says. I need to come first. And obedience to me as your king and commitment to the business of this kingdom needs to come first. And what Jesus is saying here, soberingly enough, like everything else Jesus said, is that if, you, if your understanding of this kingdom, if it's just an interruption to, to your life and, and, and your plans and your agenda, if this is just an inconvenience that kind of gets in the way, if that's what my kingdom is to you, that in and of itself is a, is, a, is a really sobering sign. There's a good chance you've never entered into this kingdom at all. What Jesus says through this parable is, I'm going to be first or I'm going to be nothing, but you get to choose and you have to choose. And every single one of us has to choose. So when I zoom out from this parable... Um, you know, I think I said this a couple weeks earlier uh, uh, as well. Um, this parable, like every other parable of Jesus, it, what it finally leaves us with is a mirror. 
with which we're forced to simply see ourselves and ask ourselves, where are we really at here? Is my life, does it really line up with what Jesus is saying? A follower of Jesus' life should look like here. But, but I'll, I'll tell you, although this parable is very sobering, at the same time, I also find it very encouraging. Uh, the, the reason that I say that is because um, it's, it's really clear from this parable that, that God actually desires his house to be filled. It's God's, that's God's desire that his house would be filled, that there's not a single empty chair, standing room only. Let's get as many people in here as we can. Because in this parable, when the first group of people don't show, it's not like God slammed the doors and said, I'm done, party's canceled. He sends his servants out and he says, I want you to fill my house because God says, it's my will that my house would be filled. What that shows me is that God desires to save people even more than people desire to be saved. And I really believe that. I really believe that. I heard, I think it's a Charles Spurgeon quote that said, God is more willing to forgive than we're willing to sin. And I would say, God is more willing to save than people even want to be saved. That's why scripture says it's God's, it's God's will that none would perish, but all would be brought to repentance. That's an incredibly encouraging thing. And so the, the question is, if God desires, I'll make it personal, if God desires that you enter into this feast, and God desires that you be filled by and empowered by, uh, that you would have the power of this feast energizing you and, and flowing through you, then the only question is, is there anything, is there anything in your life that's either keeping you from entering into this feast in the first place, or maybe you already have entered, but is there something that's keeping you from really experiencing this feast the way God's heart's, his Father's heart desire uh, for you, like he wills you to experience it. What's keeping you from that? And in, in this parable, we're left asking ourselves the questions. Um, this is for all of us. Are you, are you riddled with guilt? And are you obsessed about your performance and the person that you're not because you have failed to grasp the freeness of this? You know, or, or, or secondly, have you failed to understand the depth of your own need? Has your heart not been molded by the Father's heart of God that flows out to the margins because you've not grasped the commonness of this feast? Or thirdly and lastly, are you allowing your plans and your goals and your thoughts and your opinions and your agenda for your life to smother you because you have failed to see the eminent, ultimate importance of this feast? But whatever it is, whatever it is, what we have to realize is that what we're looking for, what every human heart is looking for, will not be found outside of the feast that is the kingdom of God. Uh, if I can zoom out here, I'm, I'm kind of on my last move now. I got one page left, so however long it takes me to get through a page. But be perfectly honest with you, I, I am more excited about what I'm about to share with you than, uh, than anything else I said today. Um, it, it is so interesting to me that there's a reason. Uh, there's a reason that we wanted to end this series with a parable that, that likens Jesus' kingdom, God's kingdom, to a banquet or, or a feast. Um, it is so interesting to me that of all the ways that Jesus could have described his kingdom to us or put it in terms that we would understand, that he likens, he likens it to sitting around a table at a feast because that image of, of, of gathering around a table, you know, enjoying a meal, is, is really something that you see everywhere you look in Scripture. For instance, in the Old Testament, God's people were commanded every single year to celebrate and remember their liberation from slavery in Egypt by uh, sharing a meal around a table that was famously called Passover. For thousands of years, God's people were commanded. Every year, you get around a table, you share this meal to remember what was really primarily the first liberating act in God's redemptive uh, history for his people. I mean, that was the act that allowed Israel to be an independent nation. God said, I want you to gather around a table to remember what I've done for you. Uh, King David, in, in what's probably the most famous psalm, very famously said that the Lord prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You know, in, in, uh, one theologian pointed out, Jesus' Jesus's entire ministry model during his time here really did revolve around a table. I read a book called A Meal with Jesus where the author pointed out that, that in, in specifically Luke's gospel account, throughout the entire gospel account, Jesus is either moving toward a table He's sitting at a table or he's walking away from a table. Matter of fact, this very parable that we studied today was a parable about a feast around the table that Jesus gave while he was enjoying a feast around a table. Literally, he was reclining at table talking about this. And uh, you even find a, a table associated with the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. I came across this quote this week from, from N.T. Wright that I, I just love the way he phrased this. He said, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal around a table. 
And so now in, in the New Testament, as God's people, much like Israel in the Old Testament, we are commanded to remember and to celebrate our liberation from slavery, slavery to sin, with something not surprisingly referred to as the Lord's table. And so at the, at the center of spiritual life for God's people in both the Old and the New Testament, you'll find a table, the table of Passover or the table of communion. And it's sort of extending that idea, you, might, you may find it interesting that for the first several hundred years of the church's existence, long before the concept of a church building even existed, uh, early church followers of Jesus would routinely be found gathering around a table celebrating the risen Christ in what was famously called their love feasts. And of the many things that made those so unique in the Roman Empire, what was different about Christians is they always left room at this table for people who didn't see life the way that they saw life. And, and maybe persecuted them, maybe hated them, but Christians were intent that everybody was going to be welcome to come and be fed and find out what Jesus had done for them. In fact, it's entirely appropriate to say that the church, once upon a time, about 2,000 years ago, completely changed the Roman Empire and completely changed the world simply by gathering around a table over and over again. And I've never shared this with you all as my, as my church family, but I, I, fi- I figured this was the perfect time to say it. I went to an outreach conference in Colorado with Aaron Mayhew about, um, I guess it was about two, two and a half years ago, uh, October I think it was. And, um, and I, I felt so strongly, and I feel it even more strongly today at that, that, that conference, that God laid it on my heart that if we were ever to change our name as a church, that we would simply be called the table. Because I see that idea everywhere I look in Scripture. And when I think about the dynamics of what happens uh, at a meal around a table, it's just perfectly in line with what God desires that his community of people would be like. Because you think about it, when you gather around a table at a meal, what happens primarily is people are fed. And that is exactly what should be happening inside the community of God's people that our hearts and our souls and our minds would be fed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's at a table that people face each other. They come to a deeper understanding of each other. Relationships are, are formed. In some cases, relationships are healed. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. It's difficult to not feel like you're more closely joined to somebody after you share a meal with them at a table. I don't know what that is. It's just something that God's designed about humanity, which, of course, should be a hallmark of God's people. But lastly, and and, and maybe most importantly, it's at a table that we find nourishment so that we can go leave and do the things that God's called us to do and live the lives that God has called us to live until the next time we gather again to be replenished and recharged over and over for as long as the time that God sees fit to have us here. It's just, it's it's perfect to me. It's something I've been so passionate about for, for two and a half years now. And it makes perfect sense to me that God's work in this world has always revolved around the table because Scripture says that God's work in this world is going to culminate around the table. It's the last Scripture verse I wanted to share with you all today. It's Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. It says, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah. Because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, these words of God are true. I want to call the worship team up. We're going to close today. What those verses are describing is something that Scripture refers to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what that is, is it's the moment in time when everyone who will put their trust in Jesus Christ will be fully, finally, totally, and eternally united to him. And and on that moment, on that day, we'll begin a feast like nothing we've ever experienced. It'll be a feast that will make sure we never go hungry again. It'll It'll be a feast that makes sure that never again will we experience things like isolation or loneliness 
or anxiety or depression, all of the ravaging effects of sin will be healed forever, never to torment us again, and it will be a feast that will wipe away every tear from every single eye. That's what every single follower of Jesus has to look forward to in their future. And although that is a feast that we are commanded to look forward to, that's also a feast that we are commanded to celebrate even here, even now. And so that's what we're going to that's what we're going to end this teaching and this series with. We're going to end this by celebrating communion, or as it's otherwise known, as, as the Lord's table. And we haven't done it this way in a long time, but I thought it would be appropriate, given everything that we've covered today, to actually take the bread and take the juice together as a family. We have those elements. Um, should be right underneath your chair. While you're gathering that, I'm going to read something to you that I keep taped in the back of my Bible. It says, The Lord's table then is not just a visual aid to remind us as though it were a memory-jogging tool. As we gather together around the table, we are being trained to eat at the big table in Jerusalem. And we're announcing to ourselves and to the satanic powers in the air around us what's really true. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die is a sham. But the alternative is not a refusal to eat, drink, or be merry because that would be ingratitude. Instead, I don't, I don't know how you read this without getting emotional. Instead, with the resurrected Jesus, we sing out, let us eat and drink and be merry for yesterday we were dead. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Would you take the bread and the juice with me and remember what your Savior has done for you? pray for us. Father God, what an amazing thing that we've been invited to the banquet that our hearts have always longed for. What an amazing thing that there's not a thing that we need to bring. That there's not a thing that we need to do. That Jesus has done it all. And simply by grace through faith in his name we can find a seat at your table. God, would you make, would you make this group of people, would you make this church a table where people would be fed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where people's hunger for satisfaction would be satisfied in you. God, would you make this place a, a, a table where relationships are formed, where people walk in isolated, where they walk in lonely, but they leave feeling like they're part of a spiritual family that's never going to break up. God, would you make this a place would you make it a table where we're fed and we're energized and empowered to go and live the lives that you've called us to live so that when we're done, we knew that we did exactly what you called us to do with our short time here, God. Thank you for inviting us to your banquet, Father. And from this day until our last day, please help us to set our minds and set our hearts on that banquet knowing that the greatest days of our lives are ahead of us. They're never going to end. By grace, through faith, in the name of Jesus.